And our gospel uh, lesson comes from Matthew today. Matthew chapter 5, verses um, 13 through 20. You can find it on your pew Bible on page 4 if you want to read along. And we're beginning a series over the next couple of weeks called Let Our Light Shine. This is a series that the children are um, also following in their um, Bible study at 10 o'clock uh, each Sunday morning. Let Our Light Shine. They're looking at what does it mean for, to let our light shine as a church. And so we'll follow the same uh, theme for the next couple of weeks. And this will be um, finalized um, with uh, a Fall Festival in uh, October 24th with the same theme going on. And as we gather in our scripture this morning, this is the very beginning in Matthew, Matthew's gospel of Jesus' ministry. If you recall, Jesus starts his ministry in Matthew um, on top of a mountain. And Jesus is often referred to in Matthew as teacher. And so Jesus finishes the Beatitudes, what we call the Beatitudes, and then he goes on and he starts going into the Sermon on the Mount. And this is the very beginning of that right after the Beatitudes. I invite you now to listen to the word of our Lord. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one after lighting a lamp puts it under the bushel basket. But on a lampstand, it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or, or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until it's accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Friends, this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. It was the summer of 1969, and the creators of the children's television show Sesame Street were just six weeks away from the air date of the first episode. Now, to make sure that the show was going to be a success, uh, they, um, the producers created one full episode, and they decided to show this to their audience, a group of children. The results were not what they expected. In making the show, the producers had followed the advice of children's uh, child psychologists who said they need to separate the fantasy elements from the real elements. In other words, when there are real human beings on the screen, the talking puppets should be nowhere in sight. The psychologists worried that mixing fantasy and reality would be misleading to the children who were watching. The problem was... When the kids tested the first episode, they lost interest every single time when the scene was only human actors. The producers knew for them to have a successful show, the audience's attention couldn't just wax and wave like that. So they imagined a new uh, vision for the show. Reshooting the 
all the street scenes with new characters. And these characters they created were characters like Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch and Mr. Snuffleupagus. Characters that uh, could walk and talk and interact with human beings on the street. They defied all of the powers that be's opinion. And it was a success. When the followers of Jesus of Nazareth came to the scene in the first century, disrupting the settled order, they were seen as a group of dreamers, ones that imagined a world that was unrealistic. They, they were filled, they said they were filled with empty words and gestures, and they were not to be trusted at all, definitely not to be followed. That was certainly the attitude of the powers that be that had towards Paul and Silas as they, as they healed a demon-possessed slave girl, which enraged the owners, who were making a pretty penny off of this girl. They landed them in jail, where they were um, cut with confinement. And they cut with confinement, not with protest, but they did so with prayer. They sing hymns of praises. They practiced forgiveness. And when the chains were broken by an earthquake, the guard that was ready to kill himself, kill himself because of all the failure of letting these people go until they were stopped by two freed prisoners. He declined to escape. Paul and Silas were, if you will, poor in spirit, yet pure in heart. They were meek as they hungered and thirsted for God's justice and hope. In their mourning and in their persecution, they were merciful. They made peace in every way that ran counter to the perception of the day. They were salt. They were light. As I mentioned earlier, Let Our Light Shine is the fall Bible study theme for our children this year, this fall. And during worship, We'll spend some time over the next couple of weeks studying what does it mean to be light in the Bible. But what does it mean then to let our light shine? What does it mean when Jesus says, let your light shine before others? Recently, a humanist chaplain at Harvard, speaking out of his tradition, said, we don't look to a God for answers. We are each other's answers. If that's the answer, to let our light shine, to look at each other, to be the light in the world, as if we were watching some sentimental Olympic story, as we wait for the swimmers to line up to compete? I'm not interested. Don't get me wrong. I don't have anything against or opposed to those such stories. But I'm yearning for something deeper. Yearning for something deeper with Jesus' teaching from the Bible yearning for a deeper meaning from God. And I believe this is exactly what is going on within this scripture. When Jesus talks about righteousness that exceeds that of the most various virtuous people in the world, Jesus, he wants something more. Jesus is, is yearning for something different. Jesus wants us to imagine a new standard, to live into a world which he calls the kingdom of God. Jesus is calling us to see a different image of God. God as love. God is one who cares about moral standards, yes. 
but God who cares even more about people. When talking about letting our light shine without God into the discussion, we're quick to add the word but into our sentence. Yes, we should forgive, but he has to pay the price. I believe in reconciliation, but not until she apologizes. Again, more, louder. Yes, I like you, but there's just not room for you at our table. Yes, I think love is a good thing, but... Instead, when we bring Jesus into the conversation, Jesus changes that word but into therefore. And that is exactly what you are the light of the world is. It is a therefore statement to the Beatitudes that precedes it. Jesus is, is getting us to reimagine the, what the world could look like by literally changing with whom and where we stand. Want to know if the light that we are trying to shine is our own light or God's light? Then take a look at your feet. You're in the right place if we're pure in heart, poor in spirit, meek, hunger, and thirsting for righteousness in the right relationships. We're in the right place when we mourn and when we are merciful and are persecuted for God's sake. Do that, be there, and our life is reconstructed. Our church is reconstructed. And this is where Jesus begins his ministry. By redirecting the feet of his followers and giving them a new identity. Saying to them, you are the light of the world. In a little bit, we're going to have the opportunity to baptize both Isabel and Allison. For them, this is a starting point. And this is why, in our tradition, we baptize infants. For in our baptism, we are being named. We're given a new identity. It's nothing that we earn. It's nothing that we can strive to receive. It's a gift given to us freely by God. God names this child. God calls us light of the world. And just like Jesus was launching his followers on a new journey, in our baptism we are launched onto a new journey that takes our entire life to live like Jesus, to care about what Jesus cared about, to reconstruct where our feet stand, and to shine the light in a world that would rather just live in darkness. Some kids getting baptized, I believe, know this. And even if they don't know it, they know it. Somewhere deep inside of them, they know it. When a kid being baptized grabs that microphone or they, they try to duck the water or, or grab onto the rope, we all tend to chuckle and say, isn't that cute? Isn't that cute? But what if it's not cute? What if it's an age appropriate response to the plain fact that we have to die before we live? What if it's a two-year-old way of saying 
that she's not sure, that she's not sure she's ready to, to live like Jesus. Or in the words of Scripture, to be the light. Her name was Ellen. She was due to be baptized at the Easter Vigil Service. The Easter Vigil Service that is a service that occurs in the middle of the night when Easter actually begins. The only thing that was, was her parents wanted was they wanted Ellen to be baptized by immersion. And the church they belonged to um, had a font very similar to ours, that there's no way you can merge a child inside that. So the priest got creative. And without asking Ellen, he decided the best thing to do was to take a 36-gallon garbage can and decorate it um, with ivy and make it look really pretty and fill it with water so Ellen could be immersed into it. And the night of the service arrived, and unbelievably, the garbage can looked pretty good. It, not too bad, really. And, but this three-year-old was savvy. She was savvy enough to know a garbage can when she saw a garbage can. And so when Ellen saw that destination that the priest had in mind for her, she stiffened up really hard and very quickly. But Ellen was also a brave little girl, and her parents had rehearsed for her well in this moment was going to happen. So she moved forward to make um, this shift bat. They moved her forward to this shift um, baptismal font and doing everything that she was supposed to do, one thing after another, right to the point where the priest leaned down to pick her up. Then, at that point, she planted her feet against the garbage can, so the water went splashing everywhere, and she screamed at the top of her lungs, Don't do it! Don't do it! <laughs> was that cute? Was that a faithful, appropriate response? That each of us has to die to live. Ellen recognized her new identity. She recognized something in that water of where Jesus was heading. And she recognized it was high. And it was hard. And it was going to be a challenge. And Mel and Christine know this. So they bring the children to church. And we all know this as, as well, too. And so we make vows. We make them to Isabel, we make them to Allison. We've made them to countless children and adults. And these vows continue today. These vows do not end when you turn 18, for all of us are children of God. But these vows carry on. And if, Allison and Isabel, when they move to a new city, the vows that we make today, that church they move into, will take our vows and continue those vows. And as people move into our community, we are taking the vows that they, their church made for them. We all continue to make them. We do this because baptism is not a destination. Baptism is the beginning. It's the beginning of a journey that God calls us to individually, yes. But God also calls us, more importantly, to do this together in a community. 
so that the church together in a community can travel on this journey together. And so together that we can go out and we can shine light into the world. And so that together, when I am living in such darkness that I cannot find that light, I trust that you live up to your vows that you have given to me and shine the light for me. Father Greg Boyle tells the story of a young man named Pedro. Caught in the, this gang life of the streets of L.A., Pedro is filled with rage and resentment that he covered up with the addiction to crack cocaine. And whenever Father Boyle would see Pedro, he'd always offer Pedro to take him to rehab, and Pedro would always decline. Until one day, one day Pedro changed his answer and began this long, hard journey of returning home. Thirty days into Pedro's rehab, his younger brother, caught up in the same similar darkness, took his own life. And when Father Bull called with the news, Pedro was devastated, as you can only imagine. Father Bull later was driving Pedro to the funeral when Pedro began to tell Bull about a dream that he had had the night before. In his dream, Pedro and Father Bull were in a large, empty room alone. There were no lights at all. There's no windows. It was complete darkness, total darkness. In the darkness, there was silence. And Father Bull takes out a flashlight from his pocket and he turns it on. Slowly deliberating, he shines the flashlight around the room into this narrow beam. Eliminates right there in the back on a light switch on the wall. No words were said. No explanation offered. Just a beam of light revealing a switch on the wall. The dream, dream Pedro stands up slowly. With some trepidation, he, he makes his way to the switch, takes a deep breath and, breath, and he flips the light on. The room is in flooded with light. At this point in retelling the story, Pedro is sobbing. His voice is astonishing in the discovery that he found. And he said, the light, the light is better than the darkness. As if he had never known this before. And then he said, I guess my brother just never found the switch. Bull writes, possessing flashlights and occasionally knowing where to aim them has to be enough for us. And the good news is, Jesus says it is enough. Our call has never been to save the world. Our call is not to save our neighbors or to even save ourselves. We are not the saviors. Jesus is. Our call, Jesus says, is to shine the light. I'll take it from there. Point to me. And the funny thing is, when we start doing that, when we start shining the light, the more we shine the light, the more we point to Jesus, the more we see Jesus, the more others point to Jesus. In our presence, our feet begin to change directions. And our identity is revealed. A few years ago, a contemporary novelist 
Mary Gordon published Reading Jesus, a writer's encounter with the Gospels. As one reviewer said, it's a, it's a book of questions for, for with quibbles with, and it attributes um, to something inscrutable protagonists of all of the Gospels. And Gordon realized that despite a Roman Catholic upbringing, she had never read all four Gospels in succession of one after the other, and she said the results are fresh. They were arresting. Perhaps no place more than her comment after reading the Beatitudes. Pausing and letting these blessings roll over her. She realized that they are calling to her to say yes. For this, for this, I'll try to change my life. And more without this. I would not know who I am. In other words, you are the light of the world. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.